Hello and welcome back to Pharmacist Diaries, the podcast that reveals the secret lives of pharmacists from where their journeys began, where they are now and everything in between. I am your host Anisha Patel and today we are fortunate to hear from another super duper amazing pediatric pharmacist, Lamia Samrin, who currently works at the Great Ormond Street Hospital for Children. Lamia and I met a couple of years back when we were both teaching the Evelina London Children's Hospital International Masterclass. She is a cancer specialist. Um, She works in the um, oncology team at Great Ormond Street Hospital and she leads their team, which is super exciting. And she has a wealth of experience in this area. We met as we were teaching on the same topic. So she taught a lot about oncology and that mixed really well with the palliative care experience that I have. So we had a joint teaching session. And when I released the Great Ormond Street um, Hospital series, Lamia reached out to me to say, hey, let me, you know, um, tell you all about my experience and my story and my journey within to pharmacy. And here we are. She is an incredible pharmacist. We talk about her passion for pediatrics and how she fell in love with pharmacy from the aspect of children from a very early stage in her career. Even during university, she knew that she really enjoyed it. And we follow her journey into hospital pharmacy, learn everything that she's been doing from education to research to managing and developing a team and now her current part-time role that also links with her Great Ormond Street role with NHS England. Before we get into this week's episode, I really want to remind you about the discount code that I have for the nakedpharmacy.com. As my listeners or viewers of the podcast, you'll receive a 20% discount using the code PD20. Both myself, my husband and my children are using the products and we're absolutely loving them. I really want to advocate for this brand because number one, it's owned and created by a pharmacist. Kevin Levers. He has over 35 years of experience working in the industry of natural medicines and has created his own company and provided us with so many different products to support our needs. For me personally, I absolutely love their gut health products, the magnesium for my sleep and Safrasun Energy. Because as a mum of two very young children, working full time and juggling the day-to-day life that I have, I really need that extra support to keep me energised and going throughout the day. I also wanted to let you know that if you're not sure where to start with your supplement regime, Kevin has a team of multiple pharmacists that you can either contact by phone, email or on social media to get some support on where to get started. Check out their website, The Naked pharmacy.com. Now let's get back to the episode. So uh, first of all, Amir, uh, welcome to the Pharmacist Diaries podcast. And Thank thanks for making the time for me today. And uh, yeah, no, I can't wait to hear your story. Obviously, I know a little bit about your role from the masterclass that we have taught together in the past. Um, but yeah, let's start your journey with why you became a pharmacist in the first place. So pharmacy, I'm not really sure if I'm honest. I think it was a case of I wanted to do something sciencey. I enjoyed maths. I enjoyed chemistry. And it was a vocational job that gave a lot of uh, opportunity for going straight into a role and practicing and seeing patients. Um, and, you know, as I started the, the journey in the pharmacy career, I was like, oh, my goodness, this is actually quite difficult. Um, didn't find all of it easy. I never did biology A-level. So I went into the degree going oh gosh I'm quite behind had to take some remedial classes remember them fondly um but as time went on you know I enjoyed the degree and then came out and did 
my um, pre-reg and yeah, I guess things just went from there. Amazing. And during the university degree, what were your thought processes on what your career would look like um, and where you wanted to kind of start your journey as a pharmacist? So definitely, and this is no disrespect to anybody who works in community pharmacy, I certainly wanted to have a bustling role in a hospital pharmacy. Um, I really enjoy sort of meeting and working with multidisciplinary team and being able to go on ward rounds and sort of showcase your um, knowledge, experience and what you bring to the team when you're seeing patients. And actually, for me, it was always paediatrics. I always knew that that's the area I loved. Um, when I was an undergrad student, I went to Michigan for an exchange placement and I spent quite a lot of my time shadowing some of the paediatric teams over there. And I absolutely loved it. And I just knew from then that I wanted something to do with paediatrics. But at that point, was nowhere near sure if, if it was going to be cancer or gastro or general um, paediatrics, but certainly knew it was hospital pharmacy and something with paediatrics involved. That's incredible that you knew from so early on. I love that because I definitely had no awareness of what I wanted to, like what specialty I wanted to go into from a very early stage. Um, so it's exciting to hear that you had a lot of awareness of that um, early on in your in your journey. Uh, so where did you start your um, career once you had qualified as a pharmacist? So my first port of call was Imperial, which uh, then was called St. Mary's Hospital in Paddington. Um, and I lived very close to a, a not very nice area at that time. You can imagine uh, Royal Oak and Westbourne Park and so on. But the hospital also, I was filled with sort of like, oh, my goodness, this is such an old hospital. I got there thinking, you know, London hospitals must be state of the art and fabulous looking inside. But it was one of the very old trusts that hadn't really had um, time to have its renovations. But learned a lot, big team, um, quite scary, if I'm honest, you know, to be a baby pharmacist after getting to sort of final year at university and thinking, oh, I know so much. And then you go and you're, you know, small fish again. Um, but no, I, I enjoyed it and clearly enjoyed it enough to two years later come back to Imperial and join their pediatric team. So they clearly made an impression. Um, and that's what I was looking for, a big team, but also a niche area to practice in. Amazing. Um, so what was your first role in paediatrics and what, what did you go down a specialist route or did they have a program where you got to see uh, like a rotational program where you got to see different specialties? Yeah, actually, straight after my pre-reg, I went to Chelsea and Westminster um, to do a almost like a step program, but it was a, a residency program, which was fantastic because you got to do the learning, teaching, training and then rotate. And one of the um, benefits of that of that post was that you had something called the DAPS, you know, the the eighteen month sort of um, program where you did six months in each area, and pediatrics was one of the ones I wanted to do, obviously. And I think that's where it started. And I didn't even do three DAPS in the end. I don't think I think I did two, and then went into a secondment in pediatrics, and that was sort of gastro, PICU, NICU, um, and I think A and E as well. And it was fascinating I really enjoyed that and it's again a, you know it was a tertiary service so there's a lot to learn really involved roles and I think that's where I got the love of it really that they really always valued the pharmacy team and the pharmacist and I thought would I get this an adult I'm sure you do but 
for me, I just could see that there was so much unknown that the pharmacists could be involved in. Um, and they always asked for advice. And I liked that. I liked to be part of the team and feel like, you know, we're being valued as the role we do kind of thing. So, yeah, that was that was an incredible time, actually, and really enjoyed being a resident. Um, I highly recommend it to anyone because it's you become a jack of all trade and you learn so much. And the learning curve is so incredibly steep. But it's it's good. It, it tests you. You know, you don't get complacent. Um, what's to do? Yeah, I, I'm with you on the whole residency um, kind of uh, start to your kind of pharmacy career, especially because it builds such a solid foundation in your clinical knowledge and in your skill set as well. I did mine in Oxford. Most people who listen to the podcast know how much I loved my residency and that I would go back today if I had the opportunity because I genuinely, you know, really thrived in that environment. Um, I think going from uh, my pre-reg year into my residency, I was quite nervous. I think I didn't have as much confidence at that time when it came to believing in myself. Um because even with the pre-reg year, um, I went to Papworth Hospital in uh, Cambridgeshire, which is a, a right. tertiary hospital, yeah. quite a small yeah. hospital, obviously cardiology and respiratory. Um, but I found it really hard to get hospital pre-reg. And I think at that time it was just um, an issue with my confidence, not necessarily my, right. my knowledge, and just um, showcasing who I am. I just got so... Mm uptight in the interviews and um the competition really got me down right. because when we obviously when yeah. we read years the um the the competition was really fierce like you knew that you would be competing against a hundred plus other pre-regers who were fighting for that residency post or that pre-reg place um so you know i really struggled from kind of the end of university to getting into that pre-reg but I really thrived in that smaller family oriented environment where mm. the pharmacists truly kind of like trained you up um, yeah. to be the best version of yourself. And that was incredible. Um, and then when I applied for that residency, I was really nervous about it. But I learned so much during my pre-reg year that my clinical knowledge just skyrocketed. Right. Um, so remember you had to have paper drug charts yeah. and like you yeah. have to look through them in the interview process yeah. and then you get quizzed like I smashed it in the in the interview because I felt really confident I, I knew my answers I knew the monitoring I knew the interactions you know you identify those missing signatures yeah. or like you know uh, <laughs> when they do gentamicin and you're looking at levels etc like you can answer the questions very systematically I think also I learned so much during my pre-reg year about a systematic process to screening a paper drug jar at the time um and when I went into the residency as soon as I was in it I was like this is the place for me it's taken me a little bit of time with my confidence but I'm meant to be here and then it was just all go 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 um I loved the kind of like three monthly rotations and mm. being in new environments like adapting to one ward to another um in Oxford it's across four hospitals so you get to meet all sorts of different people and the community there was something that I will never forget because you build um 
so many friends with all the F1s, mm. the SHOs, and in Oxford exactly. they have like a really big kind of social scene weekends um and all the the doctors used to have these mess parties that we used to get invited to that were really yeah. fun and i live with other resis yeah. so yeah. you know i, I was win, living win. the dream honestly like and i worked i worked so hard, hard. I, and yeah. i lived in the pharmacy you know like yeah. even when i wasn't meant to be working i'd come in to the mi office and do my diploma work and spend time with the other resis if they needed help we would chip in even though we weren't working uh we had one other pediatric pharmacist who's a legend um he would like you know bring us late night chocolates and <laughs> i don't know i i genuinely uh, I, I genuinely enjoyed my experience and i met my husband during that time so i was flying back oh, and yeah. forth from dubai um yeah, my love story started during my uh, the first few months of being a resident. So every kind of like eight weeks, I'd be flying out to Dubai after night shifts and um, spending long weekends with him. So um, it was a really important part of like my journey mm. as mm. as a professional, as a human, um, and kind of going into adult life. Um, yeah. And yeah, finding a partner, like getting engaged, and then eventually getting married just after residency. So yeah, it was it was an incredible journey that um, is nice to share with other people who are residents. They know exactly what you've you've Completely. kind of been through, and and they're still um, some of my best friends, you know, because we we just went through so much together, and we support each other when it was tough, and then we went out and had lots of fun when we could, you know. And then at Chelsea, the the best thing was they used to do these um shift days and shift Bs, so. The, the thing that got me when I started, I was like, how much leave do I get? And I was like, oh, gosh, it's not very much. But then if you were on a shift day, you worked sun, Saturday, Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, but then you got Wednesday, Thursday, Friday off. And if you did a shift B, you actually got Saturday, Sunday, Monday, Tuesday off. But then you were working Wednesday, Thursday, Friday only. So you got tons of leave. So, you know, I'd use that to go abroad, um, you know, chill out and go see friends. It just gave you so much flexibility. And I just thought, this is fabulous. And they had these one to nine shifts. So you do, you know, come in at one and, and finish at night. So in the morning, you could be like, oh, yeah, I'm just going to go to the gym, go shopping. I lived on the King's, you know, the um, Fulham Road shops everywhere. It was the life. Um, and, you know, we had really cheap accommodation for the first couple of years. And, you know, you, you couldn't ask for more, really, when you come out of university and you're up to your eyeballs with debts and so on to go into a stable job and actually be able to afford to do things in London. So, yeah, it's great. Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, no, um, I'm always banging on about how good it is to be a resident. Mm. And, uh, yeah, people, students and young people always who listen to this, um, hopefully they, they consider that as a, as a you know, opportunity when they first graduate from uh, university, which is good. Yeah. Um, Work hard, play hard. <laughs> what was, I guess... Yeah, it is total work hard, play hard situation. <laughs> Were there any challenging elements of the residency that you found hard? The the um the the shifts were hard, like the nighttime shifts. I would really struggle for about the week afterwards just to get back into a sleeping pattern, and then going into you know normal days and so on. That that I found really tough. And then that does affect your social life. You know, if you're if you're the person on call for three days, you've missed out on whatever else is going on those three days um and that I'd say that's probably the biggest struggle but if you're on an on-call say one in eight that's not so bad if that makes sense um but yeah you got to get on board with that and understand that for a little while there's going to be a bit of a sacrifice but the gains for the long term for your career for the friends you make 
um, is is actually worth it. I, I don't look back and think about those bits, really. I just think about the good things that came out of it, which is where you want to be, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I've even got like, we've got a, a, a resi like WhatsApp group, but it's just <laughs> now we're all mums. Yeah. And we've all got boys. Um, so we have this little light chat. And actually, we all had, um, well, I've had my second child, obviously, but they've all had their first child uh, last year in 2022. Um, right. So we've, and, and within like two months apart by chance. Wow. So um, it's really nice to see their journeys in terms of them recently getting married and kind mm. of like going into motherhood and what a difference. Because, you know, uh, when you do a residency, you're the type of person who's kind of like a go-getter. You you yeah. really are, you know, in that kind of like work hard, play hard zone. You take your professional life pretty seriously. Yeah. You definitely want to excel within your career and you're quite competitive in nature for sure. Um, yeah. We all have very similar characteristics, especially in my cohort in Oxford. We all were, you know, really feisty. Um, <laughs> and, and it's a great characteristic to have as a resident and, um these women have been super successful um, in their careers. And now it's it's really lovely to see how their life has obviously changed and molded um, as they've gone into motherhood and they've taken this one year of maternity. But they're they're loving it. They're enjoying it. They're they're thriving in in a different aspect of their life. So it's nice to have that group in that chat. You know, the 2 a.m. 2 a. messages um, yeah, when we we're all awake um, with crying <laughs> babies. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So I guess um, after your uh, like your residency, um, what kind of plans did you make for yourself or what were you thinking in terms of your career pathway? So this is interesting because I actually I um I was in a secondment uh, after my residency, the pediatric secondment, and I was really enjoying it. But I couldn't see staying there after the 18 months was up um, for various reasons. And I actually decided to go and do locoming handed in my notice, uh, teed up something at another hospital, met the team, just as a locum still. And then I got an opportunity to go and actually apply for another job. And I thought, gosh, should I should I locum for a while? I'm young, gives me flexibility, learn other things. Or actually, do I need to think about a stable job for mortgage, et cetera, and so on. And I went and got the, the permanent job instead at Imperial. But that was what gave me the step into BMT hematology oncology and you'll laugh at this because when I was a student I I chose to go abroad and pay lots of money not to be at university because I didn't want to do the oncology module because it was an optional one and I was like it's too hard I, I, I just I freak out I can't do oncology and now I lead on oncology it's I mean it's such a paradoxical sort of how I've come to where I am having thought I couldn't do it and I wouldn't like it. And I now it, that's the thing that I love. It's my passion. Um, so it's funny, you know, you should never write things off and you should never really have really um, focused ideas of what you will and will not do until you give it a go. And I learned that through getting that job at Imperial. And I, I you know, I, I started BMT thinking, you know, I, I love BMT and I actually really wanted to carry on to BMT. And they've got a big center, but there wasn't really any progression in that trust at that point. And I was a really lucky one. I, I trained under a very progressive lead pharmacist who gave me the opportunity to do my IP course when I was a band seven. So this was back in 2000 and 
11, I was still a really baby pharmacist. And she was like, fine, do your IP course. And that's what gave me the platform to be able to go into Great Ormond Street at such an early point in my career and be a fully non-medical prescribing pharmacist and lead on the outpatient um, daycare unit at Great Ormond Street. And that then has led to the progresses in my career and have stayed there and I've been there now for 12, 13 years. So I think it's a lot about, you know, the opportunities you get and when you take them. Um, and it's hard sometimes, you know, you think, gosh, you know, someone's giving me an opportunity to do my IP course and now I'm just going to leave them. But also you've got to think about where you want to be. The services will recover. They will get other people in um, and they will then take over so on and so forth. But I think for me, that was the right place at the right time. And I really wanted it and I loved it. It was great and I, I actually really enjoy working here and hence I've been here a very very long time yeah that's amazing and it, that's a good point that you raise and something that um, has come up on the podcast a couple of times is that I think there's a fine balance between uh, wanting to be very loyal to the organization yeah. that you work for and from yeah. a professional perspective there is an expectation to some extent that you should be loyal and that if you keep chopping and changing into different jobs and different organizations that when you look at your cv it kind of it looks bad like why haven't they committed yeah. to more than yeah, yeah. one year in a, in a job and and that yeah. that perception of um you know from society in terms of careers is quite difficult to navigate um but at the same time you develop a certain number of skills or you progress in your career in a certain organization such as you did you enjoyed um bmt you became a prescriber but then you potentially thought well what can i do with this that another organization could help me to build and progress further and it's very difficult to let go of an organization and then move on to the next yeah. especially when they have taken the time and energy to help you to I grow think. that's really hard I mean as a band yeah. six it's fine because you know everyone kind of does their diploma and their band six rotational job whether it's a residency or not and I mm. think there is a general um, understanding that when you do take on a band seven role they may leave and it's okay to leave but once you get into a specialist area and you take on that band seven or that band eight a job obviously there is an expectation to yeah continue and grow and develop in that one place so yeah. um I think things are molding and changing though now in the last few years. I mm -hmm. think there um people are more understanding um that it's okay that your CV changes because you're utilizing different sectors of pharmacy, you're utilizing the different career pathways that our profession very kindly has to offer Absolutely. to build your skill set and actually put you in the right place for, you know, that dream job that you want or, you know, to I guess build those stepping stones to get you to the role that you're kind of needing I mean how many fellowships are there now available within pharmacy exactly. where you have to request secondments and uh, employers are well aware that once that secondment happens and you go into that fellowship that there is a massive possibility that you will not come back because exactly. you gain all these leadership skills for example like the chief pharmaceutical officers fellowship program you gain a massive amount of leadership skills you meet an incredible amount of really 
you know, executive level uh, pharmacists or leaders within the NHS and opportunities arise. So there is obviously um, time for you to, I guess, branch out into other jobs. It's hard um, for the NHS and the organization itself, but um, in terms of keeping your staff and, you know, that staff retention is challenging. Um, But it's a good point to raise because there is a lot of guilt um, associated with moving on from a job. Yeah. And I've seen it now from the other side as a manager. So when you, uh, you know, is when my staff now leave because yeah, they've got yeah, the definitely. skills that they, they you know, um, harnessed and they want to go do new things. I'm just like, oh, but I'm losing you and you're so good and you've been here with us for so long and you know the lay of the land. Um, but you got to let them grow and you got to let them do what's right for them. Yeah. So I, I can't keep them in a cage and say, hey, you have to work here in this directorate, in this team for the foreseeable. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I completely agree. It it is hard as a manager because you've spent so much time and energy mm-hmm. training them as well, and they've become such a, um, you know, a, a brilliant kind of puzzle piece to to your team that yeah. it's then difficult to kind of let them go. And you know how much energy it takes to then train the next person. But I think actually we have to flip our mindset that actually there is beauty involved in educating that next person that comes in exactly. and helping them to grow and develop into the best version of themselves. It's just that we don't always have the time to do it. Um, or we feel like we don't have the resource. We just need someone to be like up and running ASAP. Exactly. Um, so, when you started at um, when you started at Great Ormond Street, um, did you go into a, um, a band seven or a band eight A job at that time? I went into an eight A um, as a like a prescriber on the daycare unit, which was v- very daunting, I have to say, because I went to a couple of MDTs to begin with, and I was like, I don't actually even know what these cancers are. There were names that were being thrown around like neuroblastoma and I was like is that a CNS disease and then I was like reading up and I was like it absolutely is not um and I think it was doing that job and learning so much on my own actually it was a lot of self-directed learning that got me to really understand oncology and really love it um you know and there is opportunity to do teaching with the medical teams and so on and that's grown over the years which now I get all my junior pharmacists to attend to improve their knowledge and at that level as well that when they're interacting with the clinicians but I think back when I started there wasn't a huge amount in place so yeah I was a I was a prescribing pharmacist and and I'd say 80% of my role was prescribing chemotherapy and supportive care medicines and and another 20% was probably looking after the patients on a day-to-day as and when they came in and counselling and all that stuff so we were a small team back then there was only about six of us and since I became the principal pharmacist uh, six years after we're now double in size as a team so you can see that the services are growing um, and hence we've had to grow with it and our and I think it's a fa- fabulous area that I work in because it is ever-changing and although that comes with its own challenges you're never bored you're always being told here's a new drug we want it can you get it and you spend hours reading up about it what trials there have been so I think it's an it, it's an exciting area um and I I don't think I could be anywhere else given how niche my job is right now um so it's it's great let me take you back to that comment that you've made about growing a mm. team. Um, I assume that the services within the hospital have grown and the need for pharmacists has then grown with it? 
Yeah, more or less. Um, and I was, and was are the, is this inpatients, outpatients, like clinics? What what are we um, talking about here? So outpatients has grown just because of the way we treat patients nowadays. So there used to be, um, if you were diagnosed with leukemia, for example, you'd, you'd just be in hospital for a couple of months. Um, and we've changed our mindset. We've learned more about how to ambulate these patients and get them home. And that now means those patients come to the outpatient areas. So the shift has been inpatient treatment to outpatients. We're also much better at diagnosing, as you know, molecular targets, um, being able to do whole genome sequencing. So I think we're seeing more patients earlier in their journey. And then we've also got the increase in the lines of treatment. So when I first started, it would usually be first line, second line palliation. And palliation would be quite small um, period of time and usually managed at home. Whereas now you've got first line, second line, third line, clinical trials, clinical trials, some more clinical trials, possibly some remission, um, maybe uh, back to palliation at the very or palliation at the very end. So the journey for a patient that we see has increased. And that with that, there's been an increase in obviously how often they're seen, the bed numbers that we need, and then the services have had to grow to support all of that. And the treatment options we have available are huge now compared to where we were 10 years ago. So I think that's all a knock-on effect of where we are in terms of the size of our team now. And also even the clinical teams are much bigger on the, on the ground. Amazing. And in terms of what the pharmacists do, um, mm. tell me a little bit about how it worked when you were still... Um, I guess, paper-based, and then um, <laughs> what the changes have been like now that Epic is obviously um, in existence. I, I know yeah. there are obviously going to be challenges with Epic and, you know, lots of change and building the program and making sure it all works. But um, I think the, que the, the way I'm asking the question is think about the day in the life of that pharmacist. What was the routine like for a for a band seven pharmacist who's either on a ward for inpatients or in the outpatient setting screening chemotherapy and what it was like for them paper-based versus electronic? Yeah, it's a very interesting question because um, there's lots of ways to do chemotherapy from an electronic prescribing system and it was mandated um, quite some time ago now that you had to be e-based for your for your chemotherapy prescriptions but we still weren't using them that way we were still doing them on um, chemo care was the e-system but we'd print them get them hand signed and then that prescription would follow the trail through to the pharmacists clinicians cytos back to the ward to the nurses and so on so there was a real element of centralizing that screening so we used to have two pharmacists based in the cytos unit whose split role would be screening chemotherapy followed by manufacturing and the checking process. Um, and I'm not sure that was the best way, but that was the way we did it in our hospital. Now, what Epic, et cetera, has now done is move all of that away from that centralized screening process where it's now all done at ward level by the, the clinical pharmacists who are looking after those patients. Um, and it's, I'm not suggesting that it's the slickest way. There are challenges with Epic, as you know, there's a lot of buttons to click and, you know, it's, it's actually made a lot of extra work for us in terms of re-verifying things. Um, but certainly everything is there at your fingertips. 
You know, the whole patient record is sitting right in front of you. You haven't got to go rooting for any um, sets of notes, any communications that have fallen out, trying to chase a prescription that had three days of chemotherapy that you know you need to make chemotherapy for day five, six and seven. And you're like, where is that prescription gone? I'm pretty sure I remember spending 30 percent of my time looking through notes, asking for notes and just couldn't find prescriptions, which I knew had been done. You know, and that audit trail was always by hand. And I used to have this feeling we used to do prescribing on a Monday and a Thursday. So the admin team would bring all their notes and there would be a trolley on the safari daycare unit. And then I'd have a list of all the patients that were due in the next week. And I would systematically work through all their prescribing and I'd finish it by Wednesday afternoon and the trolley would be empty. And I'd come in on Thursday morning and it would be full again. So it was like Groundhog Day. Every week I'd come in and I'd just be like, oh, my gosh, more prescribing to do. But that's completely gone now. Now we work on like work queues. We have lots of really good um, systems in place to make it a lot more easy to see who's done what. So it's really changed. And and I think it's, it's definitely better. The challenge I find as a manager and also when I do clinical work now on the wards is you spend your life staring at this computer screen because you're constantly thinking, I'm not going to know when somebody's prescribed something. And if you think back to when we were on paper and you had paper drug charts, you'd see your patient in the morning, you'd go to ward round, you'd follow up on anything from ward round, but then you'd leave the prescription. You'd go off, you'd do your other bits and bobs, they'll call you if they need something else, and then you'd come back and maybe do a pickup in the afternoon or see the difficult or, you know, the patients that you really needed to follow up on. Whereas now, you feel like you constantly have to have drug charts open. You know, and I think that's I'm trying to really educate the team and, and help them to move away from that, to be like, actually, don't worry so much in that respect that if there is something that they need you for, they will contact you for. But you cannot be expected to sit there and look at 10 prescriptions constantly all day long. Um, so you've got you've got to start training them to come off the wards, move away from the epic system um, that we have. But it's such a different way of thinking, because especially because you don't even really take a laptop to the patient's room and you know what I mean you're doing it almost quite remotely yeah uh, I'm with you on that and that's a good point to raise because electronic prescribing has really changed the way that we work as pharmacists and I think it's actually stopping us from excelling in other aspects of um, your skill set. So if you look at, you know, the advanced pharmacy framework, there are obviously so many elements within that that you need to grow, whether that's leadership, education and training, formulary and guidelines, um, the clinical work, the patient education, the counselling, etc. Like there's a, you know, a, a wide variety of uh, topics that you need to grow in. But when you are a band seven pharmacist and you are mainly ward based, um, Back in the day, the expectation was that, hey, you go to the ward from nine to one and then for the rest of the day, like you said, you go back to the ward if you need anything urgent to be done or you kind of wait for a bleep from them if they need something that's not ward stock um, that needs specifically ordering or a patient's being discharged and you wait for them to contact you. Or if you know that someone's going to be prescribed something high risk, you'll run back to the ward, screen that and then get on with your afternoon. So there was a lot of opportunity for you to then get involved with your senior pharmacists to work on projects, do your formulary stuff, work on guidelines, uh, maybe do education and training for the nurses in the afternoon. And um, I think as um, kind of junior pharmacists, maybe around a 
you know, a decade ago, this is our generation or my generation and yours. Um, we were quite independent in that in that way, and we didn't rely on um, or we we had an understanding that you check the patient once a day and it's okay not to see them again. But when you are yep. electronic and you physically see all those prescriptions constantly coming through, it's like chasing a numbers game. You can see that, okay, on my ward in the morning, there's 150 prescriptions that were written overnight past 5 p.m. until I turn up. So I need to screen every single prescription before I can leave the ward except for having lunch however a lot of those prescriptions um are not high risk or things that can wait but i think mm -hmm. there's also that fear that if i if i only screen 100 of those out of the 150 that tomorrow there may be 200 to go through and i'm just i need to just finish it because otherwise i'm i'm just going to be behind on what i need to do for the patients and also in pediatrics there's the element of i need to look at it because what if they've made a mistake with prescribing and i need to make sure that i put the patient first and physically open it up and and screen it so Things have definitely changed where you feel like you're constantly chasing that electronic screen. And that culture, I think, really does, like you say, it needs to change. And managers like yourself yeah. have to explain to the sevens that it's okay not right. to be able to do everything because there are lots of other jobs. There are lots of other projects. There are lots of other opportunities for you to learn and grow that are just as important as being a ward pharmacist and having that fine balance because it is hard. Even when I'm on the ward, of course, I want to see that clinical review tab at zero. And I think mentally, you also feel like you haven't done your job unless you see it at zero. In reality, it's never going to be at zero. You could get it to zero and five minutes later, a new prescription pops <clears throat> up or a patient comes out of surgery and 10 prescriptions come up. Um, so it's really hard to kind of navigate those thoughts and those feelings and that guilt of not being able to yeah, cut that list down. Yeah. Um, but then you lose out on the opportunity to grow on other elements of your kind of pharmacy role and I think also yeah. you lose your love for pharmacy because you just feel like you're a screening machine um, and in community pharmacy a lot of people say that you're constantly dispensing and checking right you're literally like you said it's groundhog day you're doing the same thing mm. over and over and over again day in day out and hospital pharmacy for some areas is now becoming like this um, so it's good that you've raised it that we need to have a culture shift yeah. and we need to kind of educate our juniors that it's okay yeah. to leave things and kind of try Absolutely. elsewhere um, and actually, for me, it's about it's about the added value. You know, if you screen those 150, what value are you adding if half of those are stat doses that have already been given or things that have been discontinued? Um, and I think that's really hard to to explain to somebody that what you what you do is is great, but you need to understand which bits have the most impact and choose to clinically appraise a patient that way. Um, and when you used to have paper genetic charts, it was somewhat easier, I think. Um, definitely think it's much harder when you're all encompassing on a system that's yeah throws a lot of information at you if I'm honest so it's hard to kind of tease it out it's like a catch 20 it's a catch 22 when you've got paper drug charts you're blind you leave the ward and you're blind if that you know high risk insulin or the gentamicin or you know uh, warfarin's been prescribed and then you don't look at it for 24 hours and you wish you had when you realise the next day that there was a mistake but then when you've got, you know, an electronic system, you're constantly on it and seeing things popping up and mm -hmm. you feel the need to 
you know, yeah. be that machine. Um, I guess I wanted to ask you as well, like now that you've talked about the fact that you spend a lot of time on a computer and you spend a lot of time clinically screening remotely, and this is the case globally where a lot of pharmacists are feeling this way if they have electronic systems. Um, where do your pharmacists get involved with um, patient education and counselling? How does that work for your team? So they, so they are um, all ward-based that's probably the first thing I'll say. And I think that's a choice we've made to ensure that they can be right there by the patient's side whenever they need to be. So they'll touch base with every patient when they come in, whether that's our MMT team or whether that's our pharmacists. And then they'll do the same throughout their journey. When new medicines are started, there should be a conversation to let them know what's been started. And then obviously there's the whole discharge process as well. And, you know, you've got to remember some of our patients come in and out quite quickly and we'll come back in every three weeks. So you you kind of build a, a rapport with them um, and some will just be in for long periods of time. And then there's also the patients who are newly diagnosed and they're incredibly um, in a difficult position trying to grasp what the diagnosis of their little children are. Um, and we're also trying to explain the medicines to them. Um, I think we, we have, we're trying to strike the right balance to make sure that we do speak to patients. We don't just sit behind the computer. They need to know that we're there on the ward to, if they want to come and ask us a question. Um, and that is getting much better. We we try to give them lots of aids in terms of how to give medicines. And we speak and talk through the best ways to do that. And obviously working in paediatrics, as I'm sure you know, you have to think outside the box. It's not take two tablets twice a day. You know, there's a lot of conversations around Okay, um, how are you going to manage this at home? What times of the day do you, do, do you give medicines that suit your lifestyle? Do you have other children that you need to look after? These medicines need to go in the fridge. Are you traveling? All of that kind of stuff is an added stuff that we have to think about with our pediatric patients. Um, and, you know, we're very involved and that's why the service works the way it does. We are very much on the shop floor, so to speak. That's amazing. And yeah, you're right. I mean, we always have to think outside the box with formulations, with how to give medications. Um, I assume that there's also issues with supply um, and what GPs have access to that you might prescribe um, in-house um, for kind of like the supportive care. Um, and you're helping to navigate through those issues. I mean, in palliative care, we obviously a lot of our patients are in the community with their families at home for weeks, if not months. And we have a lot of my emails. My emails are inquiries from my team to support patients with supply problems um, and GPs not being able to find things on the system or community mm -hmm. pharmacies not being able to order something specific um, or finding different routes um, of administration or, you know, a certain route hasn't worked. So what other options have we got? Yeah. Um, and because we yep. deal with um, a, a lot of neonates, it's it's really challenging to find um formulations without having this tiny 0.1 mil which is you know barely measurable um exactly. so you know we we have to really think outside the box but this is the beauty of pediatrics and something that i've talked exactly. about with everyone on the great ormond street series and something that we all love about the job because we like problem solving it's part of our personality yeah. here yeah. um as pediatric pharmacists that we like to find solutions for our patients and make sure that the best possible care is is given not to say that it's not done in adults but it's just slightly more um 
um, unique. I think it's slightly more personalized because every single patient is different. Um, you've got to take into consideration the parents' routine, the school routine, Absolutely. whether they're going to yeah. nursery, all of those things um, affect the timings of, of medications. You can't just say three times a day. It just doesn't always work nope. for families. Nope. Um so it's, yeah, it's really uh, nice to hear that aspect of, of, you know, how you guys are getting involved with patient education and counselling. Mm. Mm. I assume that a lot of your time is spent um, working on formulary and um, guidelines. And like you said, so many new drugs are coming onto the market and adding those yeah. medications to your formulary. Is that quite a time consuming job for you? Incredibly. Um, not in a bad way. It's just the funding hasn't quite caught up with what's available for peds, which I'm sure you know about. Um, and that's just, a, you know, that's a wider conversation to be had with the NHS services and so on. But as a result of that, a lot of the stuff that we use in our patients now are coming through compassionate access programs, which then need to be appraised in the trust, which we then need guidelines for. But actually, we're it's not that we're making them up, but we it would be better if they were coming nationally than to be done locally, which, as you say, there then will be lots of variation across centres as to how they're managing these things. And we have good sort of networks with the paediatric oncology pharmacists um, and we try to work together and CCLG, which is one of our other sort of educational bodies, also helps with some of this stuff, but it's not as progressive as in adult oncology. And it's quite clear cut with adults, you know, treatments are available, they come through the NICE pathway and they are approved or they're not approved. And then it, it's essentially a case of, yes, you can use it or not. In paediatrics, it's so much more difficult because the clinical trials go on for longer periods of time. You need to have international studies. They take time to report, to get the level of RCTs that you need to get NICE to fund things for paediatrics can take years. And that doesn't keep in time with where the treatment is. Do you know what I mean? So that causes a lot of issues on the ground for us in terms of, yeah, added paperwork, DTC submissions. Um, but it has to be safe for the patients. You know, I'm not suggesting that we don't do it. I'm just suggesting that at the moment that is incredibly lengthy and um, takes away a lot of the time from the actual clinical of seeing the patients is all that background work that you do to get it ready for the patient um, in a safe way. Amazing. Um, and how has that kind of the formulary work and the guidelines has that linked to the role that you're involved with um in terms of nhs england not quite um, um that is okay because um, that's slightly different in the sense that um i was doing one day a week for nhs england as a link oncology pediatric pharmacist and now what that meant was to support national pharmacists with queries around funding uh, commissioning um SACT work, which is sort of the mapping of, of the national protocols and regimens. That then sort of evolved into having an opportunity to do something a bit more um, at a national level for uh, adult and paediatric cancers. But that's sort of looking at how drugs are funded through the system and working at a more um, commissioning level than the clinical level, if that makes sense. And so now I do that three days a week. And it was mainly to understand that pathway, if I'm honest, because I had some knowledge of it, but I'd never worked it, if that makes sense. Somebody would tell me this is what you do, but there's actually a lot of work that happens. And so this has given me the opportunity to actually do it myself um, in, a, in a wider team. Um, commercial medicines team is, is what they're called. 
So I understand a lot more about that now and why things are funded, not funded, what evidences you need. Um, and, you know, when you were a baby pharmacist, you heard about how nice appraised things, you know, you hear about quaffs and quals and ices and you go, what on earth? You know, you kind of understand it, but you, but now I really do. I have to report on them. I have to really appraise whether something is going to be cost effective. So I can see where it should go for peds, if, if nothing else. Um, we just don't have that structure for peds, the medicines for children policy. For me right now, I don't feel this is fit for purpose where we are in the trajectory of all the new drugs that are coming in. But certainly I think it's going to help me understand and give that knowledge to the clinicians on the ground to say, hey, you might need to do a policy proposition here, which is a separate process, but you're more likely to then get some funding um, than to have to have local funding options. And for, for my area, certainly, I think that's incredibly helpful. Although it's a long process, it's the only one that's currently available. And if I can support them because I understand it, I think it's one step closer to the game. Amazing. I love it. Um, and how can you see your, I guess, career evolve from from now? You're doing three three days a week at NHS England. Uh, yeah. The remainder of your time is obviously with Great Ormond Street. Um, I always ask, uh, kind of towards the end of the podcast, that where where do you see yourself in sort of ten years' time? Um, mm -hmm. What what's your career pathway going to look like for you? Yeah, so the NHS England three days a week was a bit of a left field move. Um, and initially it was mainly to give me some opportunity to do my advanced framework uh, for the consultant pharmacist portfolio. Um, I was kind of hoping that it would have or allow time to delve into the portfolio, but the job was actually a lot harder than I anticipated and there was a lot to learn. So I haven't quite managed to move on to that, but that is my end goal. I, I would love to be a paediatric oncology consultant pharmacist. Currently, there are none in the country. There was one, and it's only ever been one, um, and she left that post. The person who came into that, I believe that they, they're no longer in that. So currently, there aren't any. But if you think, compared to the adult world, or pharmacy adult world, so many consultant pharmacists, why are we so behind? And so I want to do it to be able to allow other people to do it. I think we should all be consultant pharmacists at, at the levels that we practice and the insane amount of um, detail we we go on and the expertise we provide for these patients. So many drugs that I work with are sort of first in, in pediatrics or, you know, they're extrapolated data that you're trying to work with. There's definitely a, a space for consultant pharmacists to really work um, with and at the clinician level and that's what it should allow you to do if you're a consultant pharmacist um, but I'm not quite there yet I, I need to take the time out to do it and the job is busy and I think I guess everyone hopefully will relate to the fact that we all want to do these things but the reality is your day-to-day -day job is full-on you've got family life um, you've got other commitments you you know want to enjoy and see your friends but yeah, I will. I will get there. Um, I think I've got to cut myself a bit of slack. I think I've. I've you will absolutely. Of just studying and doing things, and I'm just like, it will come.
No, absolutely. You will achieve it a hundred percent, like I'm sure you will. Um, but you do need to be kind to yourself. You are a full-time working mum. You're you're currently in two jobs as well. So and and being in two very different jobs, it's two sets mm. of emails, two sets of colleagues, two sets of you know working practices, and completely different roles. I mean, of course, I'm in a split post. I totally understand where you're coming from. That you just your brain is split in two ways and sometimes it's hard to even segregate day to day so on my days that I'm working as university lecturer I do pop on to my Evelina emails and check if any (laughs) symptom management plans have come through because I don't want my team to have to do them Um, and if I can spend 20 to 30 minutes like and do it myself um, I will try to but if it's a a complex patient that needs more time and energy I have to allow my team to um, support me but you are in two places at the same time which is really hard um you know there is there is value in segregating the two roles completely but on a day-to-day basis it doesn't always work like that when you've got patients on the other side of the uh, on the other side of the line um i of course like you have children a family life um and then i've got the podcast so it is quite overwhelming in terms of getting everything done and achieving all the goals that you want to achieve and within pharmacy we are constantly learning and signing up for courses and there are a lot of expectations to continually get more qualifications it's a big joke in my family they're like when are you going to stop (laughs) you've done sort of 13 years of postgraduate education like you know post like high school um when are you going to stop? I'm like, it just doesn't. There's, you know, I'm, I've even been thinking, should I do a diploma in pediatric palliative care? I think it would really support um, the specialty I'm in and the learning. Um, and I'll be able to, you know, do a better job with my patients. Like, why wouldn't I do that? But then, of course, finding the time and the energy um, to be able to do that is hard. And even with the consultant pathway, um, I looked it up recently um, and it is something, again, that I'd really like to do, but I just think I'm in a place at the moment where my, where I'm in too many places and mm. I need to simplify my life a little bit yeah. while my children are super young and my son is way more needy than my daughter ever was. So I'm having to now transition through those thought processes that actually it's not as easy to be a parent of two versus one. Um, you've got this super young child who is 100% dependent on you and... Um, yeah, he he requires a lot more of my attention than Liliana ever yeah. did. Um, yeah. So it's really hard. Um, again, like we've talked about, sleep deprivation is real. Um, yeah. So you can't always be as functional and, you know, um, you know that go-getter pharmacist that you want to be. And it's so hard for me because I want to do everything, but I need to, I've come to a kind of a crossroads where I have to accept Um, And I have to be kind to myself that it's okay to slow down um, and do things in a different way. Um, And when, you know, they're a little bit more stable and he's sleeping through the night, hopefully things will change for me and my brain power will, you know, skyrocket back up to where it was before. Um, So that's amazing. Like your journey has been really wonderful. Um, You've done so much with your team and it's nice to see how far you've kind of grown within the oncology, hematology space in paediatrics. And I can't wait to hear the day when you become that consultant pharmacist and uh, we can celebrate that achievement. (laughs) It'll be a while. 
Yeah, it'll be a while, but when it happens, we will have to celebrate it because it's a journey. It's a journey um, for for anyone, and it's an exciting journey. Um, So you know, you got to celebrate those wins for sure. Um, Thanks for making time to come and talk to me on the podcast today and sharing your story. Yeah, yeah, you got to dream big. Absolutely, I love that. Um, And we'll end the podcast on a positive note. To dream big.